Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. While you are finding that passage, is that me? It's not me. Is it you, Jason? Come on, man. <laughs> what was I saying? While you're finding that passage, uh, two things that I would just ask you to, to join me in praying for this week. Uh, first of all, some of you already know this, but Robert Payne has been in the hospital all week, uh, and he's very sick. And, um, you know, I, I could probably go into more detail about that, but I'll, I'm sure I'll get a detail wrong. But uh, he just needs our prayers. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm praying for his healing, and I'm also praying for his... Uh, his confidence in Christ right now. And, and I would just ask you to join me this week in praying for Robert. Um, also, uh, next Sunday, actually next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the elders and I will be taking a few days uh, away uh, to just kind of pray together and study scripture together and to uh, talk about the task that we have to shepherd uh, the flock here at Indian Creek Baptist Church. And so next Sunday, you know, you guys are on your own. No, I'm just joking. Uh, Pastor Andrew will be preaching next Sunday, and everything will just will be just fine. But the elders and I will be gone, not out of like protest. We're not leaving the church or anything like that. Um, but we'll just be on kind of an elders retreat. So, um, the health, the spiritual health of our elders, I'm sure you recognize this, is very impactful on the spiritual health of our congregation. And so, I would ask you to to even to set an alarm. Uh, this week and just spend a moment praying for us to shepherd well and to shepherd in a unified manner and to shepherd wisely and sacrificially and in a Christ-like manner uh, and for this weekend to, uh, to help us uh, to, to grow in that way. Uh, so uh, I'm going to read this text and then we're going to pray for those two things as well as for our sermon. Let's go ahead and read beginning in verse 1, the second half of verse 1. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. 
Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, that text was not a happy one. And yet you are still on your throne, as we'll see. And so we bow before you, Father, as you were loyal subjects, and we rest in the knowledge that you have made a way so that we can be right with you and not just be servants of the king, but also children of the Father. Lord, I pray right now for our brother, Robert Payne. He's suffering. He's, I'm sure, dealing with the uh, thread of fear and anxiety, and I pray that you would uh, do whatever it takes to heal him, Father, and bring him home. And Lord, even more than that, I pray that in this moment of uh, dark difficulty, I pray that you would cause him to see you high and lifted up. And I pray that you would raise up his heart to, to have joy in your presence and to actually experience the peace of your spirit. And I pray that he would know and be more convinced than he's ever been that his future is brighter than his present because his future is guaranteed by Christ. 
Lord, I pray that you would gather the doctors, nurses, his uh, friends and family around him to support him, and I pray that you'd bring him back to us. Um, We just ask this as your children, Father. We know that you're in control and we trust you. Lord, we pray as well for the elders retreat that's taking place next weekend, and we ask that it would be not just a good time, not just a refreshing time, but a time when we grow in our role as shepherds and that we would be able to model our shepherding task after the great shepherd. I pray that you would use this time to uh, renew our commitment to that and that you would bless our church as a result of of that event. Father, we pray as well for this uh, time in the word. I pray that you'd open up your truth to us and that we would be changed. And I pray that you would draw us to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, my son and I were talking about Gaga Ball. How many of you have played Gaga Ball before? All right, we've got a few Gaga Ball players. If you don't know what Gaga Ball is, it's basically like if dodgeball and uh, street hockey got married and had a baby. And... Had a, and the baby was named Gaga Ball, okay? I'll let you look it up later. But all the kids these days are playing Gaga Ball in recess at school. And Austin informed me um, of a feature of the Gaga Ball pit at Travis Elementary School here in Mineral Wells. And I hope this isn't a secret because I'm about to tell you what it is. Uh, if you know about this, you can use it to your advantage. Apparently, there is one specific corner of the pit where if you stand there, you are magically protected from getting out. And not only that, not only that, but people who try to get you out will find themselves getting out instead. So there you go, pro tip for for Gaga Ball. So if a fifth grader stands there and wins the game, then the explanation is simply, well, of course, she was standing in the magic corner, the lucky corner. And if she doesn't win the game, well, then maybe she just isn't all that good at accessing the mystical advantages of the special corner, and, you know, somebody else needs to be there instead. Uh, Now, my son, okay, those of you who know Austin, you know that he knows that that's just for fun, okay? But let me just make that clear. It's, they know deep down inside, all the kids, there's nothing special about that corner, but it's kind of fun to think about. And we all do this sort of thing. We think, you know, today's going to be a good day. I've got my lucky socks on. Or I hit all green lights on my way to work this morning. This must be my day. Or I I knew I was going to strike out last inning because I tapped my cleats three times and I was supposed to do it four times. Psychologists call this sort of thing magical thinking or magical ideation. Most magical thinking is considered pretty harmless unless you kind of let it take over your life, like in the case of obsessive-compulsive disorder. But what happens when we utilize magical thinking in reference to God? What happens when rituals and relics become the means in our minds of manipulating the divine to bring about a desired effect. Does that work? Is that how God operates? Like, if I like and share a picture of Jesus, will I get a financial windfall? If I give $100 to the church, will I get 1000 back in a month's time from an unnamed source? 
If I attend church regularly and volunteer once a month and read my Bible every day, will God sort of look the other way when I decide, you know what, I don't want to be married anymore? Or when we decide my commitment to honesty in my business is getting a little fuzzy. Here in our text today, we are going to see both the Israelites and their rivals, the Philistines, engage in a kind of magical thinking. Only in their case, they aren't playfully assigning significance to a corner in a game. No, they are fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of the glorious God, and the fallout, as we've seen, is deadly. Now listen, if you want to have a pair of lucky socks, that is fine, as long as you wash them. But what this text is going to show us is that magical thinking with regard to the God of Israel will not end well because it amounts to a very specific and a very heinous misunderstanding of I am. Here's what the Israelites and particularly the family of Eli the priest didn't get. God is not a genie to be conjured. He's a king to be feared. And we see this in each of the three scenes described in this chapter. So what I'd like to do this morning is to examine this passage scene by scene to understand what happens when we think of God in this way. The first scene is found in verses 1 through 11. So notice with me the recounting of the battle. The recounting of the battle. The Philistines had been a thorn in Israel's side for a long time. Here in chapter 4, they're arrayed in open Uh, field uh, against Israel's armies to engage in close combat. And we're told in verse 2, the Philistines are winning this battle. In fact, on the first day, they kill about 4,000 Israelite troops. That's a lot of sons and fathers and brothers. And the Israelites are concerned because it would seem that if they engage the enemy again, it's only going to get worse. So they hold this war council and the elders form a plan. Look at verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, we know that this wasn't a very good plan, but I think it would be very easy for us to make the mistake of thinking wrongly about why it wasn't a good plan. I mean, when you evaluate this battle from the standpoint of our modern Western point of view, Uh, the problems seem obvious. Can you imagine uh, the national security advisor uh, on a day like today uh, coming into the Oval Office and saying, Mr. President, we've got a plan. Like, here's what we need to do. We're really concerned about the Russians and whether they're going to invade Ukraine. And so here's what I think we should do. Let's go over to the Capitol building. Let's grab the Declaration of Independence, fly it over there, and the Declaration of Independence is going to save us and, 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 and... Bring peace in the world. That would never happen. Because in our way of thinking, the presence of an important object has absolutely nothing to do with the outcome of a battle. And so you might be tempted to think that both the Israelites and the Philistines are kind of silly for thinking this way. But if that's what you come away thinking, you're going to miss the whole point. You see, non-Western cultures recognize something that we often leave aside, namely that the things that we can see in our world are directly impacted by many things that we do not see. There is a whole unseen realm of beings that exist outside of the physical. Christians believe this, but Christians in modern contexts like ours often ignore it. 
And in this way, as we'll see as we move through the, the book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites and the Philistines and, and most people living in the world have sort of an advantage over us. They recognize and take this into account. They at least recognize that there's more going on than just what we can perceive with our five senses. In fact, there are some things that the Israelites and the Philistines get right in this passage, and there are also some things that they get wrong. Here's what they get right. They both recognize the power and the authority of the God of Israel. Did you notice what the elders said? What did they ask? They said, why has the Lord defeated us today? In other words, they recognize that ultimately the problem is not that the Philistines had defeated them. The problem is the Lord defeated them. So they're recognizing the power of God. The Lord was against them. That's a good insight. That's true. Because if God had wanted them to trounce the Philistines, he could have made it happen in a matter of minutes. It could have, it could have happened just like that. And they knew that. Notice the Philistines have a similar appreciation for the power of God. They're terrified. These are the gods, they say, who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So they're still talking about what God had done centuries before. So both these armies recognize the power of God. Both of them recognize the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant is essentially God's earthly throne. He told Moses that that is where he is going to meet with him. And so both the Israelites and the Philistines recognize that God is present for this battle and that he's going to have a decisive impact on the outcome of the battle. But beyond that, they make a fatal mistake. And by the way, the Philistines are going to pay for this too, but they're going to pay less and they're going to pay later. We'll see that next week. But Israel has no excuse. They should really know better. And for that reason, they're going to pay very dearly. Because look at what happens. The ark comes into the camp. The Israelites are very excited. They think, yeah, we're going to win. We're going to do this. The Philistines are terrified. And so instead of just doing what they maybe normally would do the next day, they go all in to defeat the Israelites. No reserves, no support regiments. Like every man, grab your sword, grab your shield, because we are going to go out there and we're going to fight for our lives. And the Philistines go out there and they totally decimate the Israelite forces. Just to give you a frame of reference, the, the bloodiest single day of combat, I'm told, in American history is, uh, was one day during the Battle of Antietam in the Civil War when 5,389 soldiers die. But folks, that's less than a sixth of the, or I'm sorry, less than a fifth of, of the amount that die here in this battle. So this is a huge defeat. What did these guys get wrong? What was the problem? Do you remember what Hannah said in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2? We read it in the beginning of the service. There is none holy like the Lord. There are no gods beside you. They knew they needed God to intervene. They recognized his power. They recognized his presence. But they still treated God like a tool that they could wield in their own hands in order to bring about their own ends. Somehow through the decadence of Israel's spiritual leaders, they had downgraded from the worship of the living God, the creator of the ends of the earth, their covenant Lord who is sovereign over all things, to a kind of magical thinking. No different from the idolatrous nations that surrounded them. Instead of saying, how can I live in covenant with the God who made me and redeemed my nation, they had begun to ask, how can we manipulate God into doing what we want him to do for us? 
Here's the lesson of this battle. Here's the real problem with this kind of magical thinking. It's not that the silly Israelites were relying on a lucky rabbit's foot rather than engaging in solid military strategy. That's not the issue at all. The real problem is that they're wielding the ark of God like this tool in their hands. And what that exposes is that they have no idea who their God is. The issue wasn't that they believed in magic or spiritual things. The issue was that they were treating the God of all the earth like he was their slave. God has told them what he was really concerned about. God didn't care about the rituals of the tabernacle for their own sake. He didn't care about the mystique surrounding the Ark of the Covenant for its own sake. No, these things, as important as they are, are signs expressions of a relationship that ought to exist in the heart of his people, a relationship of father to children, of covenant king and loyal subject. And he told them what was going to happen if they got their eye off the ball. Here's Leviticus 26. There are many examples of this, but here's one. Leviticus 26. If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. So you brought the ark into the battle. You really think that that's going to change my priorities? Like I'm going to be obligated to help you in this battle because you brought this special box? Here's the lesson this battle teaches us. Here's what we need to take away. God is not a genie to be conjured. He is a king to be feared. See, I don't don't think this way. This text isn't for me. I don't engage in that kind of magical thinking. I'm very reasonable. Excuse me, we might not be carrying around little amulets in our pockets, but we are very much tempted to think this way. God, I'll give you a few bucks in an hour on Sunday morning, and when I'm facing an enemy, I'll bring you out, and I expect you to perform for me. When God doesn't obey us and heal the disease or alleviate the relational tension or provide a fatter paycheck, we get bitter. We act like God failed us. I rubbed the lamp. Where was my genie? I paid my tithe. I put my kids in the right school. I liked and shared that picture of Jesus. I joined the right kind of church. And when I needed him the most, God hung me out to dry. This is the way that we're tempted to think. But when we do, we've got the wrong idea about God. He isn't just a more powerful spirit than the other spirits that you can cut a deal with. He is the holy God who demands our devotion and he's earned our complete and total trust. He's in a class by himself. There is none holy like the Lord. There are no gods beside him, not even next to him. Don't go the way of the Israelite elders. Don't treat God like a more powerful version of everybody else. He is totally unique in every other way. I mean, there are powerful beings in the universe, but none of them created the world. There's only one person who did that. This is how our text begins, but notice that in verse 12, the scene changes as news of the conflict reaches the sanctuary back at Shiloh. And so consider with me not only the recounting of the battle, but secondly, the report of the battle. The report of the battle. Beginning in verse 12, we're told a young man runs back to Shiloh in order to tell everybody what happened. 
And he makes his way to Eli the high priest, and he tells Eli, and then Eli is so upset that he actually falls over backwards, and he breaks his neck, and he dies. So in and of itself, this is a really dark moment in Israel's history. If you're keeping score, tens of thousands of Israelites have died. The Philistines have gained the advantage over Israel. The ark of God has been captured. The priests have been killed. And now the high priest, Eli himself, is dead. All in one day. But notice in verse 18 how these events are described. You have to pay close attention. In 1 Samuel, you've got to pay close attention to the details because they mean so much. Look at how the Holy Spirit-inspired narrator describes this event. As soon as the young man mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. Pay attention to this. For the man was old and heavy. Now, that word heavy is critical. It's the Hebrew word kavod. You remember that from a few weeks ago? It's the same word that's translated glory or honor or glorify or honoring or something like that in these other contexts. Our English translation uses different words, but in Hebrew, it's the same word. So you remember when we were going through chapter 2 and God comes to Eli to warn him that judgment is coming, what did he say? He said, those He said, you're honoring your sons, kavod. You're giving weight to your sons by making yourselves fat, and you're not honoring me. Those who honor me, I will honor, kavod, and those who despise me, those who make me a lightweight, will be lightly esteemed. In other words, you might feel bad for Eli, like this is a really bad day for him. But God had told him what the problem was. The problem was that Eli and his sons were big and weighty and honored and glorious in their own eyes, and they were looking at God as if God is nothing. That's the issue. And when the time comes for God to be true to his word and bring down judgment on the house of Eli, what is it that ends up killing this guy? It's that very thing. It's his heaviness. It's his weightiness. Now, make no mistake, God isn't offering up a moral lesson. See, we're so vain in, in, the, in America. We're thinking, well, man, I do need to lose a few pounds. That's not the point. No, the Holy Spirit is making a point here. He could have just said Eli fell over and broke his neck, but he adds this detail about Eli's weight so that we don't miss the point. He had made himself and his sons glorious and God despised. And in the end, it's the very thing that destroyed him. What are we to make of Eli in his 40-year tenure as a judge of Israel? Ultimately, let's just be honest, we don't know what his spiritual state was when he died. We don't know. It's not our job to know. But in Israel's history, Eli and his legacy become something of a byword, a cautionary tale. Uh, If you're reading through the prophets and you get to Jeremiah chapter 7, Uh, The prophet Jeremiah reminds his own generation of the outcome of Eli's ministry. Uh, Apparently, during Jeremiah's ministry, people living in Jerusalem were sort of patting themselves on the back and making themselves feel better about the coming judgment of God. And they were saying, listen, these other empires, Babylon, they're not going to invade Jerusalem because God would never let the temple be destroyed. And so I'm going to stay near the temple. And they literally would go around chanting, the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah goes back to them and he says, listen, remember Shiloh? 
Remember what happened to the ark? Remember what happened to Eli? This city, this temple, it's going to be just the same thing. God doesn't care about the ark for its own sake. He isn't your puppy dog with a collection of favorite toys. The significance of those physical objects is that they're a sign of God's covenant relationship with his people. That is what is important to God. Folks, what we're meant to take away from Eli's death here is this. Sooner or later, your view of God is going to catch up with you. Sooner or later, your view of God is going to catch up with you. It took decades. Eli was already old and on his way out, but not before the judgment of God had fallen. And a man who should have died in peace, surrounded by his family and his friends, dies of a broken neck and a broken heart in grief and tragedy, but eventually his view of God as a lightweight catches up with him. And the same type of thing happens with believers nowadays. What you believe, what you really, truly believe about God, it is going to catch up with you someday. If you're making assumptions about God that contradict who he really is, then eventually those beliefs are going to have an inescapable impact on what happens in your life and what happens to the people that you care about. You need to think, young people, you need to think about this. I feel a jealousy for you because I know just by the law of averages, just because of what happens normally in churches, a lot of you have made a commitment to Jesus. It's merely superficial. It's just on the outside. You've gone, nobody can see it now. You've gone along with it because your parents encourage you to make a profession of faith and get baptized, but you know you don't really love God. You don't really want him to sit on the throne and be the king over your life. You're okay with a little bit of Jesus in your life, but if you're being honest, he's just an add-on, and you keep him on the margins. You don't want him in charge. You don't really trust him. You don't really respect him. And I'm telling you, that disconnect between what you believe and what everybody else thinks that you believe, one day, that is going to catch up with you. It may not be this year or next year or even in the next 10 years, but the time is going to come when the nature of your view of God as this cosmic Santa Claus, a nice old man who gives you presents and frowns a little bit when you're naughty, that's going to catch up. In Eli's case, and certainly in the case of Eli's sons, that reality caught up with them when it was too late. And so I'm just begging you, I am pleading with you, do not make the same mistake. The rest of us, we need to think about, the, about this as well. I mean, when you come to the end of your life, is this the way you want it to go? When the people who come to your funeral are standing next to your casket, do you really want them to have this nagging voice in the back of their minds that they're not going to say out loud because they're polite? I wonder if he really trusted Jesus. I really, I wonder if God was really his God in his heart. Folks, I don't want my legacy to be a byword. He made himself weighty rather than God. No, I need to know my God now. We've seen the recounting of the battle and the description of the report of the battle, but in the third place, look at verses 19 through 22, where we see the result of the battle. 
the result of the battle. Verse 19. When Eli's daughter-in-law heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. I know this has been a dark and depressing text. I'm aware of that. But we're not even done. Tens of thousands are dead. The ark is in enemy hands. Priests are dead. The high priest is dead. Eli's daughter-in-law dies in childbirth. And before she breathes her last breath, she names her child. The glory has departed. On the one hand, Phineas' wife sums up the point of the whole chapter. The kavod has departed. It's gone. Eli and his sons had made themselves heavy, weighty, glorious, and robbed God of his weightiness and his glory. And it's this false glory that leads to their destruction and demise. And in the end, their glory departs. It's gone. What a tragedy. From the perspective of Eli and his family, this is an unmitigated tragedy. Uh, this is like a movie. The devastation is overwhelming. But from the perspective of the plan of God and his relationship to his people, the departure of the glory is the very thing that is actually going to propel God's plan forward. We're going to see that as we move forward. Because as we're going to see, God's glory is going to fall heavy on the Philistines in the next few chapters. They're going to experience the glory of God in an abrupt and unmistakable way. And in the meantime, Samuel has already taken his place as judge in Israel. God is far from done with his people. In fact, keep in mind, it was Eli and his sons who had made it difficult to be a faithful Israelite during these 40 years. So the glory has departed from, from Eli. But in a sense, the rest of Israel is primed for a revival. You say, Jake, I... I could really use some encouragement today. You're just taking me into the dungeon. Why do we have to be so dark? Why do we have to spend so much time focused on judgment? And I know this isn't pleasant to think about. I get it. But there are contours of gospel truth even in a text as filled with death and destruction as this one. Keep in mind what this passage teaches. God's not a genie to be conjured. He's a, a king to be feared. And in this passage, the king of the universe is letting justice rain down upon the rebels. He's a righteous king who won't turn a blind eye to rebellion, but will surely pour out his unrelenting wrath upon the proud and the self-serving. He's a jealous king who will not take his place as first among a pantheon of lesser gods, but will assert his unique and holy place as the glorious creator who's unlike any other being in existence. He's the loyal king who rescues his covenant people from the oppressors, who steal from the pots and kettles of the faithful in order to fatten themselves. He's a faithful king. He carries out his warnings and he fulfills the promises he makes. And it is good, folks, for us to consider the outcome of those who, religious though they may be, decide to make themselves glorious and God small. We need to stop and stay and stare at this smoldering wreck called the house of Eli and ask ourselves, 
How can I escape this fate? How can I be saved? How can I escape and stand before a holy and glorious God whose judgment is as severe and, and, and inescapable as this? Is it through some religious formula? Maybe if I tithe and read my Bible and sit in church a couple times a month, this God will be appeased and I'll escape. Maybe if I walk the Romans road and recite a magical prayer and plunge into the waters of baptism, this God will be appeased. I mean, we manage even to take the response to the gospel and make it into a law. But folks, I can't emphasize enough, there is nothing we can give God that he needs, that he does not already possess, that he has not already given to us. He isn't impressed with our show of religion any more than he was impressed by the golden altar or the Ark of the Covenant in Eli's day. That's, folks, that is the way of the gods of the nations. Baal, look, look what we did. We did this special religious ritual. Aren't you excited? Aren't you happy now? Now you can send us some rain and make our crops grow. This is the way that the pagan nations were thinking. God isn't like that. He doesn't need us. So how am I going to escape God's judgment? Not through a religious formula. No, in fact, there's nothing that I can do, absolutely nothing, to appease the wrath of God against sin. God must provide a way himself. And this is why the gospel is not, an, it's not a message of improve yourself. Change your life. Even if you could do that, it wouldn't help you. The gospel is a message of God's judgment is severe and inescapable, but God himself has provided a way of escape because he has finally, ultimately poured out that judgment on himself in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ, the man from Nazareth who felt the glorious weight of God's judgment heavy on him as he hung dying, cursed and forsaken, and he took it all, like all of it. We know that because there was a, there was a day when he wasn't dead anymore. And he's alive to this day. I, I realize there are people in this room who are not Christians. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad you're here. And I want, I want you to have a good morning. But friend, I'm going to tell you the truth. And it's a painful truth, but you need to hear it. The good news is not that God will give you success and happiness but by you joining a church, like throwing him a bone, and, and putting a few bucks in the offering plate, that is not the good news. The good news starts with this fundamental truth. God is king and you are his created subject. God is king and he rules in justice. God is king and he will brook no rivals. God is king and he will judge the rebel, religious or not. God is king, not a genie to be called upon whenever you find yourself in battle with an enemy. God is king. And like Eli and his sons, like the elders of the nation of Israel in our passage today, you have not honored him as king. You've not given him his due. If your heart had a throne, God wouldn't be on it. You're on the throne. And the most loving thing I can do is tell you that you will not escape the sure and certain judgment of the king. In fact, you are living literally on borrowed time. No, your only hope is the reality that God has taken that judgment 
and poured it out on the Lord Jesus. And so instead of saying, God, I promise I'll give you something you want, just don't punish me. You must believe that God has already judged Jesus in your place. Come to him, say, God, you're right, I'm wrong, I've sinned, I've rebelled, I've earned your judgment, I agree with you that my sin is as bad as you say, I don't deserve your mercy, and I don't have anything to give you, but would you please forgive me anyway, not because of something that I've done, but because of your son. Don't wait, don't shrug it off, don't dismiss the convicting voice of the Spirit of God. Believer, I wonder this morning if there's a way you've shifted in your thinking from the reality that God is your king to a way of thinking that God is your cosmic Santa Claus. Do you feel that pull, that enticement? In what ways are you thinking of God as obligated to you, as owing you something? God, we've done everything you said. Why haven't you given us a child? God, I prayed about taking this job. Why am I stuck working for this cruel boss? God, I pray for my kids every day. How can you let them make the decisions that they're making? And we've gone from crying out to the Lord in our pain, which is absolutely what we must do, to accusing God of injustice, of not keeping up his end of the bargain. Beloved, God cares about you but he doesn't owe you a thing. He doesn't owe you an explanation. He doesn't owe you your three wishes. And as hard as it is to hear, I'm telling you, you will have greater joy when you give even this circumstance over to him and say, God, you're the king. You have every right to allow this circumstance and instead of trying to take control and manipulate you into giving me what I want, I'm gonna let you be in charge today. I'm gonna let you be the king today. It seems like the glory is departing and I don't understand that, but you've got a good reason for doing what you do, for allowing what you allow. And today I'm going to take my place, not as the king, but as the subject of the king. You're the king and I'm not. This morning, let's remember God's promise. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. Let's honor him. Let's give him the glory, him the weight in our response to him today. Would you pray with me now? Let's pray. Father, forgive us because even though we know what you're like, sometimes our hearts uh, really don't know it to the degree that we need to know it. And we still are just enticed and tempted to say that you are in the wrong. God, please forgive us. And Lord, life is hard. And so we want to we bring our cares to you and trust that you care for us. But at the end of the day, we also want to humble ourselves under your mighty hand so that at the proper time you might exalt us. That's your 
choice. And Father, we give it back to you like it should have been in the beginning. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.